Hey, Sam. Oh, hey, Justine. Uh, this is Justine Paradise, our newest producer on Outside In. Yeah, it's my first time on the show, and I actually can't believe that the very first thing I'm going to say on Outside In is such an outrageous pun. <laughs> I, I feel like as a new dad, I have to approve of puns, so uh, uh, go for it. So a couple weeks ago, I went to Boston for a cat show, and it was called Catsachusetts. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> too far. <laughs> I mean, it's just right. You <laughs> uh, said there's going to be a parade of cats at 1230. So this is the world of the cat fancy. And a fancy basically means hobby. It's the term for pedigreed animal breeding. So the Westminster Dog Show is the pinnacle of the dog fancy, but there's also a horse fancy, a butterfly fancy, and so on. So this is like Westminster, but for cats. Uh, yes, and just not so British. Just said, a <laughs> Face painting. I assume they're not painting cats' faces, right? I mean, you never know. So I did not have any trouble finding people to come with me. I actually had three friends tag along, uh, Will and Olivia, who just live in Boston, and our colleague Christina from the station. And we all met up at this cavernous ice rink in Cambridge, which had been transformed into this kind of trade show slash cat breed competition. If you hear cat loose, please stand still and let the owner catch the cat. Do not try to catch the cat yourself. Cat loose. Cat loose. There was so much protocol, and Sam, there were so many cats. A lot of these cats have very intricate homes. There's yes. a lot of different fabrics and patterns and pillows and toys. And, and like layers and hammocks. Look yeah, at that hammock. hammocks. Hammocks. Cat hammocks. You know something that I'm actually surprised by is it doesn't really smell in here. It, it does a little. I think you've gotten used to it. I definitely walked in and was like... <laughs> so this was a Tika show, and Tika is the International Cat Association, and they recognize 71 different breeds of cats, each one with specific standards and qualities that the judges look for. And so we saw so many different cats. There was the very handsome Norwegian forest cat, which is a big, rugged, kind of fluffy creature, the compact minuets, Perilous. the sleek silver-gray chartreux, and amongst our little group, the crowd favorite. Yes. <laughs> this was a Persian. It was just a big white sort of cloud puffball of a cat with such a grumpy expression on his face. Weird, weird little snowman. So hideous. <laughs> so that's my friend Will there. And something he said, do you know that dragon from The NeverEnding Story? Have you seen that movie? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the luck dragon. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, eventually we came to this other judging ring. Oh, wow. Okay. These are Bengals. That's a Bengal. So the Bengal is a really striking cat. It's big for a house cat, muscular with wide paws, rounded ears, and most importantly, rosettes, which are not just spots, but pale markings with kind of a dark outline. I mean, these, these cats like look like little leopards. Yeah, and that is precisely the point. The Bengal is actually the result of a hybridization between the ordinary house cat and the wild Asian leopard cat. So it's wild. It's a wild cat. Well, that's the question. So the goal of the Bengal is to be able to feel like you're living with a wild animal in your house, but like without the drawbacks of a wild animal. Like that it might eat you. Right. Details. Details. <laughs> it's just like tasty human snack. Whatever. From New Hampshire Public Radio, you're listening to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. The Bengal cat is an attempt to preserve the image of a leopard in the body of a house cat. 
using a wild animal's genes while leaving out the wild animal personality. But is it possible to isolate the parts of a wild animal that you do like and forego the parts that you don't? Can you have your leopard rosette and your little cat, too? Our bigger babies. Oh, look at you, child. Oh, my God. Look at you. They're not too brave yet. <laughs> Today, Bengals are a very popular breed, the most registered breed with Tika, the International Cat Association. And there are Bengal breeders all over the country and the world, including Denise Eckhart, who owns Simeas Bengals outside of Boston. She has three females, including two who'd just given birth to litters when we visited. In the right light, they have this gold-dusted appearance. They kind of glitter. Denise also had a breeding male in an outdoor enclosure with a 10-foot fence separate from the unspayed ladies. Big, wow. You stay in, big boy. Oh, be one. Look at how sturdy and yeah, strong he, he looks. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just a big, he's a big hunk of chunk of boy. Yeah, he's huge. That's producer Hannah McCarthy there. Again, when you're reporting a story about cats, it's easy to get people to volunteer to tag along on reporting trips. Are all of these kittens already sold to whomever they'll go to? I have a wait list. You do? I do. And I'm quoting 10 to 12 months at this point. Um, how much do your kittens go for? They're priced at fifteen to 1800 for a pet. So show rights are more and breeding privileges are more. Would you ever consider breeding any other breed? Uh, I, why would I? <laughs> I mean, I, now I want <laughs> a bangle cat. But, oh my gosh, they're just so unique. I mean. They are, they really are. Yeah. And there's so many things that I see in them that are more wild than your average domestic. It's so interesting that like body language and the, the energy that, is put into everything that they do and that sort of the crouching walking is more than your average it's it's just more it's I, the best way i can describe it is just more i came to denise's house not just skeptical of bengal cats but skeptical of the idea of cats as pets period but these cats really are magnetic and both Hannah and I walked away from Denise's house kind of wanting a Bengal. Now, there are a couple really common critiques of cat breeding. One is that cat breeds are often inbred, which can lead to all kinds of genetic challenges like compromised immune systems, breathing problems, even skull deformations. And the second critique is that there are already so many cats in the world in shelters. 860,000 unwanted cats are euthanized every year, according to the ASPCA. This is the adopt-don't-shop idea. I want to acknowledge these points, but that's not where I'm going. I want to know what's going on in this impulse to bring something that looks like a wildcat into your home. What is it about those leopard rosettes and those big eyes? The feelings that you get from being in the same room, sharing the same air, or when you get that moment where you caress your hand down the back of an animal that looks wild, it kind of transcends time and space and reminds you why people wanted domestic animals to begin with. This is Anthony Hutcherson. He's an event producer and speechwriter who lives outside of D.C., and he's also a Bengal breeder. His cattery is called Jungle Tracks Bengal Cats. 
Anthony fell in love with the idea of living with a wildcat when he was just a kid, seven years old. When, enamored with his brown tabby cat Whiskers, he started reading books about cats at the library. I started to compare Whiskers to the wildcats I saw in those books, like bobcats and jaguars and tigers, and became just enamored with ocelots. And when Anthony got older, he thought, why shouldn't I have a wildcat? It depends on the state, but in general, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service requires you to get a permit if you want to own something like a tiger or an ocelot. But there is a loophole that makes it pretty easy, if expensive. Even in the Washington Post, in the classified section, there was a woman who used to advertise servals and caracals, uh, which are both wild species of cat and um, can be pretty big. I didn't buy one of those cats, but a very good friend of mine uh, bought a caracal from the back of the Washington Post. She lived in Washington, D.C., in the middle of the city, and I went over to visit because it was so cool, and I met the cat as a kitten, and I watched her grow up, and this woman also had a Siamese cat. Well, she came home one day, and her caracal ate her Siamese cat, but just left the head. Wow. It just left the head. That's such an image. I know that is. Isn't that horrible? But so then uh, she was freaked out. Anthony has never had a caracal, but he did live with an ocelot, his favorite cat, while studying abroad in Venezuela. Regular cat pee can rust metal. Ocelot pee can, like, I don't know, corrode rock. It's horrible. The ocelot actually peed on his suitcase. And the smell was so strong, Anthony had to throw it away. With that, Anthony realized that living with a wildcat might be a romantic idea, but the reality's got a bad smell, at the very least. So, Anthony was not going to own a wildcat. But what about the next best thing? It was sometime in the mid-80s, and Anthony was at the grocery store with his mom. While he waited for her to check out, he started flipping through the magazines by the register. And one was uh, one of those grocery store tabloids that had an article and full-color photographs about a woman who created a domestic cat that looked like a leopard. I couldn't believe it. And they had pictures of her holding one of them and pictures of one of the cats. They said, they're $2,000, and she called them leopardettes. By a stroke of luck, Anthony, at 11 years old, had stumbled across the founder of what would eventually be called the Bengal Cat. Her name was Jean Mill. Jean died this spring at the age of 92. We actually recorded this interview before she passed away. She is one of the most inspiring, amazing, terrific, and um, genius people I know. Jean started her work with cat breeding when she went to college during World War II, and afterward when her husband was on the GI Bill at school. She studied genetics. She didn't get a degree in it, but she studied it there, and her thesis was creating a panda cat, a cat that looked like a panda bear that was black on some parts and white on others. This eventually became what we now call the Himalayan. Fast forward 20 more years, she um, was then living in Southern Arizona, and she thought, well, that was neat, but I want something that looks wild. And that's when Jean decided to try hybridizing a domestic cat with a wild cat. She chose the Asian leopard cat, which is a small, solitary, nocturnal hunter native to Southeast Asia. It's about the size of a house cat, but it has more rounded ears, bigger eyes, and, most importantly, that spotted pattern on its coat. So she ordered one from a wild animal import and export company, 
And one day, a kitten arrived in a box on her front porch. But how was this even going to be possible? What Jean was about to do is incredibly murky biologically. She was trying to create a new breed by crossing the cat with a different species. Can we just take a minute here to define our terms? I I feel like I'm still kind of unclear about the difference between like a breed and a species. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Join that club, I'll be honest with you. So uh, the difference between, I mean, breed is a, it's, it's like race, honestly. I mean, it's, it's a social construct. It really has no scientific definition. Anthony says that Intica, a breed, is a group of animals of the same species that when bred together, creates more that look like them. Two Siamese cats make more Siamese kittens. It's kind of a loose definition. And actually, the definition of species is slippery too. Legally, a species is defined by the Endangered Species Act of 1973 to be any distinct population segment which interbreeds when mature. In other words, if they can mate and have offspring, they're the same species. But for a while now, scientists have acknowledged that those lines can be pretty blurry. Coyotes breed with wolves, for example, and a horse can breed with a donkey. Although that creates a mule, which is a sterile animal. It can't reproduce. And that is exactly what happened when Jean Mill first crossed the Asian leopard cat with the domestic cat. In relative terms, they shared a common ancestor six million years ago. So when a leopard cat breeds a domestic cat, they are bridging a six million year divide. More like seven million, but who's counting? The result of that is that only females are fertile. Males are sterile. And so you have to back cross that female with a domestic cat. And the offspring of those, only the females are fertile in that cross. And you have to back cross those second generation females to a domestic male. Creating the Bengal was a slow process. It is very challenging to artificially inseminate a cat due to the nature of the reproduction, which to our eye is a little brutal. Essentially, the cat penis is barbed and that stimulates ovulation, so it's hard to do artificially. So when that first Asian leopard cat arrived in a box on Jean's porch, she had to get the cats genuinely interested in one another, which means raising them together from an impressionable young age. Once they do make kittens, It takes four generations of crossing and back-crossing before the offspring are finally fertile in both sexes, which, Anthony says, qualifies them as a member of the domestic cat species, no longer a wild hybrid. We'll get back to that later. This process took years. And of course, Jean was working in the dark. She didn't know about the four generations of back-crossing when she started, and she didn't know if she'd ever get to a breed. Plus, sometimes life got in the way. She got to the second generation, but then uh, tragedy struck her um, and she had to abandon her breeding program and move to Southern California because her husband died. Jean gave up her first hybrids to the San Diego Zoo. So years later, when she finally returned to the project, she had to completely start over. She managed to pick up a couple of Asian leopard cat hybrids from a researcher, cats that were just one step away from the wild, still sterile on the male side. Then she launched into a search for just the right domestic cats to incorporate into the breeding program. That search became global when, while she was on vacation in India, she visited the rhino pen at the zoo in Delhi. Anthony Hutcherson says that's where she noticed a spotted kind of sparkly cat hunting mice near the rhino's grain bin. And so she bred that cat to the one she had, and then she was able to get fertility in both sexes. And that's where the Bengal breed comes from. 
thus, finally, the Bengal was born. But the world still had to accept it. That story, after the break. You're listening to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And I'm Justine Paradise. Before the break, we learned about the creation of the Bengal, a breed of domestic cat that looks like a little ocelot without the drawbacks of a wild animal. You know, like spontaneous violent outbursts or epically strong urine. But at that point, the concept of a cat breed was still a relatively new one. Not too long before. There were no cat breeds, essentially. This is Abigail Tucker. She's a science journalist and author of the book The Lion in the Living Room. Like a lot of people we talked to in this episode, she loves cats. She'd written about jellyfish and wolves, animals far from her daily life. But then her eyes fell on her cat, Cheeto, as if for the first time. I started looking at this little animal that lived in my house at my feet and next to me on the couch, and I started thinking that even though it seemed familiar to me in a lot of ways, um, I didn't really understand how it had come to cohabitate with me, and that mystery kind of drove the reporting. Cat, why are you in our houses, in our videos, on our interwebs? If you were a human in the year 10,000 BCE and you had to make a bet on which of the wild animals around you would become a domestic pet, the Near Eastern wildcat would have looked like a really bad choice. Unlike the wild ancestors of dogs, which are pack animals, or sheep and horses, which are herbivores, the Near Eastern wildcat is a solitary apex predator, 100% carnivorous, competing with humans for a convenient source of protein, meat. All this does not make the Near Eastern wildcat a good candidate for a pet. So how did they make the transition? 12 to 14,000 years ago, humans were just settling down into villages. They started growing food and storing it, making piles of trash, attracting rodents, which also drew all manner of bold creatures who, tempted by all those delicious mice, got over their fear of being eaten by people. And we actually see this in the archaeological record. Uh, I'm dealing with a site that's about 11,600 years old in uh, Turkey now. That's Melinda Zeter. She's a senior scientist in the Department of Anthropology at the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian. She's been thinking about domestication for the past 20 years. And the prevailing theory now is cats and dogs basically started out in the same way, kind of domesticating themselves. The less wary wolves, maybe the sort of beta wolves in the pack, you know, the loser ones, began to approach human settlements to feed off refuse. This is just really funny to think of all dogs as kind of loser wolves. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure my, um, thank God my dog isn't in the room. He'd be very upset with me. Um, So cats and dogs started out in a similar way, but we didn't develop the same relationship with cats as we did with dogs. Note, there's a difference here between tameness and domestication. Theoretically, you could train a wolf to be tame, but it would give birth to offspring that would be wild. They'd have to go through the same training and taming process. Domestication is something different, but really hard to pin down. Melinda says she looks at it as a relationship. With dogs, that relationship developed. They started being bred for sheep herding, for hunting, to drive sleds. We gave them jobs. And their appearance started changing too. Charles Darwin described this as the domestication syndrome. Things like curly tails, floppy ears, shorter teeth, spotted fur. But 
The interesting thing about cats is that they don't exhibit a lot of these features that are common um, in the domestication syndrome. That's Abigail Tucker again. We don't have lop-eared cats. We don't have cats with curly tails. We do have cats with spotted fur. They do have the key trait that's sort of associated with all domesticated animals, and that is the reduced uh, brain. The thing is, even though we have a sense of what domestication feels like and what it looks like, at a genetic level, it is still pretty murky. Scientists are still determining what and where those genes are. And so, beyond the smaller brain, there's a solid debate on how domesticated cats really are. Personally, the way I understand it is if domestication is a spectrum from 1 to 10, dogs maybe are at level 8, and cats perhaps level 1 or 2. Because we never gave cats jobs. We didn't selectively breed them. Instead, cats just kind of hung out, hunting mice in barns, skulking in alleys, worshipped by the Egyptians, hated in the Middle Ages, but otherwise living on the periphery, kind of like presences rather than pets. And that was our relationship for about 12,000 years, until right about now. The last 200 really 100 and and even you could say 50 years had been the time of the rise of the house cat and this um time of this this animal's sort of vertical hour coincides with the fall of the rest of the cat family as humans started to take up more and more space it was harder and harder to live with big wild cats but it was comparatively easy to live with a domestic cat and so wherever humans went Cats quietly tagged along, mostly ignored. But all that changed in the mid-1800s, when the Victorians got involved. And to demonstrate how dramatically the Victorian era transformed our house pets, Sam and I are going to look at pictures of dogs on the internet. I'm always on board for this. So again, in the case of dogs, they had jobs. They were hunting dogs with long noses and a keen sense of smell, and compact and quick breeds good for catching rats. Let's take, for example, the French bulldog, sturdy and athletic, bred for sport. I mean, he's, he's a stocky little dog, short little legs, uh, you know. But the Victorians basically turned them into funhouse mirror versions of themselves. Oh my god, look at how wrinkly the face is! And they came through, not only looking a little cartoonish, but sometimes actually non-functional. They can have hip dysplasia, breathing problems. French bulldogs have to be delivered by C-section because their heads are too big to pass through the birth canal. He looks like a lawn sculpture. Like, you just set this dog out, (laughs) and he just stands there and, like, breathes. (laughs) Queen Victoria herself was particularly interested in Pomeranians, especially little ones. So, during her reign, the breed was miniaturized. And the Victorians loved classifying and manipulating the world around them, which led to the concept of the pet show. They had shows for all kinds of pets, obviously dogs, but also uh, rabbits and guinea pigs. And um, apparently cats were like the last thing they got to. And thus the cat fancy was born. But for most people, their pet cats didn't really change for a while. They were mostly still in the barn or living outside. Until... Hi, I'm Ed Lowe. Since I invented cat box filler in 1947, I've been improving it ever since. First, I added two deodorants to my kitty litter. I think that the invention of kitty litter was uh, a catalyst, as as you could say, (laughs) for... (laughs) for um, for this change. And also, 
I think these larger global trends, this uh, everything from, um, you know, the urbanization, which um, led to people living in smaller spaces, um, more convenient for cats than dogs, to even things like the movement of women into the workplace. The general trends of the 20th century created a perfect environment for cats to move into the house, which they did in massive numbers. The pet industry will gross an estimated $72 billion in the U.S. in 2018, according to the American Pet Products Association. They also estimate there are 94.2 million pet cats in the United States, almost as many house cats as people with college diplomas. This is a meteoric rise for the house cat, beyond any feline's wildest dreams. And with that rise came experimentation. The number of breeds rocketed from about a dozen to 40, 50, or more, depending on who you ask. And it was in the crucible of this meteoric cat rise that the Bengal was born. You couldn't do a uh, pet show without felines. And uh, what you see, these beautiful and exotic breeds of cats that we have here today. And here to uh, tell us more about them is cat breeder Anthony Hutcherson. Uh, from, uh, That's Martha Stewart welcoming Anthony Hutcherson onto her show. Aside from Jean Mill, who retired from breeding when she was 80, Anthony is probably the biggest ambassador of the Bengal cat breed. You had to you know, not only make cats and get the attention of the media, but you had to participate in the regular cat fans. You had to go to cat shows. You had to have judges consider your plans. And Anthony has not stopped pursuing Bengals since that moment in the grocery store when he saw Jean Mill advertising her leopardettes in the early 80s. He was part of a profile on wildcat hybrids in The New Yorker, and he was written up by The New York Times, The Washington Post, invited to the Westminster Dog Show with his cats last year, and he's been the chair of the Bengal cat breed section of Tika since 2009. In the early years of the breed, even the cat fancy wasn't too keen on the Bengal. We'd come to this cat show, and uh, the breeders of other breeds, Maine Coons and Persians, didn't want Bengals breeders and their cats anywhere near them. They wanted us all in one section of the cat show because they said our cats smelled, uh, their pee was different, and they made their cats act differently, and that uh, our cats weren't really domestic cats. Beyond cat urine, these comments have a disquieting whiff. Given that ideas about species and breeding emerged during a time when the Victorians, and the Western world in general, they were also exploring ideas of classifying humans. Anthony is black. And this is not lost on him. They are intrinsically intertwined. The idea of what a breed is and what a species is, race and culture. Some regulators insist that even though Bengals can now reproduce with any domestic cat, they're still a wild hybrid. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service makes you get a permit to import or export a Bengal outside the country, similar to an endangered species or wild animal. Seattle, New York City, and Hawaii ban all hybrid cats. To Anthony, this feels like the infamous one-drop rule, the one that said that any black ancestry made you a black person. It's like for these regulators, one drop of wildcat, no matter how many generations away, make Bengals still wild. But in the pet breeding world, Bengal breeders have won the argument. Tika accepted the Bengal as a registered breed in 1986. There's another major pedigreed cat registry too, the CFA, the Cat Fanciers Association, and they finally accepted the Bengal in 2016. So who's right? Is the Bengal domestic, or is it still a wild hybrid? Wildcat Sanctuary, this is Tammy. 
This is Tammy Ties. She is the executive director of the Wildcat Sanctuary in Minnesota, which she founded in 1999. We have over 100 residents. Um, we have uh, tigers, leopards. It's a nonprofit sanctuary that houses big cats that used to be pets or used for entertainment at roadside zoos and the like. Jungle cats, and um, at least about 25% of our population are the hybrid cats. The Bengal is not the only hybrid cat breed, although they are the most common. And keeping these hybrid cats is expensive for the wildcat sanctuary. Tammy says their hybrid vet bills are higher than all the other big cats combined. Like a lot of purebreds, hybrid cats can be inbred. Plus, they can still kind of act like wildcats. People spent $500, 1000 even up to $10,000 on a cat that's peeing all over their house. Domestic cats can even spray. That's part of what they do. But we also see they're very vocal and they're very active. And that's why people like them. But uh, I always kind of laugh. It's like having a two-year-old that never grows up. Bengals, the whole world revolves around them. They can even get aggressive. Tammy says a lot of people get Bengals for their looks, but don't understand the personality that comes with. And she says the most common comments she hears is, the breeder never told me about this. The breeders get very mad at us, and they say, these are nothing more than domestic cats. You're ruining domestic cats. And then it's so funny because if you actually took the paperwork that they gave to their customer who gave them $1,000 for a Bengal, that whole paperwork brags about how they just purchased a wild mixed cat and how it's ancestry and it's a lap leopard and how special it is. And so these breeders can't have it both ways. They can't try and claim this is a 100% domestic cat, but then to sell it, uh, market the exoticness and the wild genetics of this animal. Now, I want to acknowledge here that not all breeders are the same. And this is what makes Anthony's argument so complicated. Sure, his hybrids might be 12 generations away from wildcats, but other breeders are still breeding the wild Asian leopard cats back into the gene pool and calling them Bengals. They're still messing with the original recipe, introducing more wild genes back into the breed. Yes, there are still people doing that. Um, that's a, uh, it's a touchy subject, honestly. Yeah, well, what, why is it touchy? Well, because uh, folks like me think uh, it uh, perpetuates this idea that uh, it's not possible to create a cat that looks like a little leopard without breeding it to a leopard cat or a wild animal. So if you're Joe Cat Fancy and you're looking for a Bengal breeder on Google, it can be hard to know what you're going to get. But to me, one of the most interesting aspects of this conversation is also the most basic part of it. It's the starting premise of the whole breed. Can you isolate the parts of a wild animal that you like, but forego the parts that you don't? Can you keep the leopard rosette, but leave out the leopard personality? What is can be troubling about some of these uh, hybrid domestic wild cats is just that it's again this um, slightly Victorian impulse that we are the lords of the universe and we're going to have a little lion purring in our lap, you know, enjoying their company while sort of blissfully going about our business and killing off all the real wild cats in the world. That's Abigail Tucker again, author of The Lion in the Living Room. Sometimes these these um, hybrid cat breeders will argue, well, but these cats are ambassadors for animals like lions and tigers. But I'm not sure that that's always true. I mean, having a cat of any kind is at heart a selfish act. 
we have cats because we like cats. We love lions and tigers. We want leopard print on our cats and on our leggings. We name our cars and our sports teams after big cats. But we also have a really hard time living with them. Big cats need lots of space and isolation. With habitat loss, climate change, hunting, plus millennia of human-cat conflicts, by and large, we're witnessing the near-total decline of big cats around the globe. There is just one jaguar known to be alive in the wild in the United States, and less than 4,000 wild tigers alive globally, which is far fewer than the number of tigers captive in the United States alone. To me, all these different portrayals of leopards, including the Bengal, sound like different iterations of the same desire. There are ways to be close to the parts of wildness that are easy to live with, but to leave out the parts that are hard, like leaving enough space for them on Earth. It's like, as tigers and leopards are vanishing, they're also growing more and more visible and more and more saleable. I just feel that it's... The big cat's mystique is sort of like the last thing they've got going for them. So for us to sort of take that from them and make it commonplace seems kind of both... We'll make it something you can buy. Exactly. They're sort of commodifying something that is like the wildest thing that we have left on the earth. Outside In was produced this week by Justine Paradise and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Erica Janik, Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Hannah McCarthy, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Special thanks to Judy Sugden, Leslie Lyons, Katie Lytle, and Carla Bizell. And also, if you're curious to learn more about the Bengal and wildcat hybrids, I first learned about them in a New Yorker article by Ariel Levy called Living Room Leopards, and that's linked on our website, outsideinradio.org. Music for this week's episode came from Jazar, Steve Coombs, Kevin McLeod, Tyler Gibbons, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you've got a question for our Ask Sam hotline, give us a call. We're always looking for thorny trails to follow. Leave us a voicemail at 1-844-GO-OTTER. That's 844-466-8837. Don't forget to leave a number so we can call you back. And thanks. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Cat's name is Misty Morning Curious George of the Jungle. Meow 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 me